Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Well, today we're going to start our study of 1 Samuel in earnest. And uh, we had an introduction last week and found that 1 Samuel is part of a four-book set of Holy Scripture consisting of 1 and 2 Samuel along with 1 and 2 Kings that were originally but one large unified book. And it was when the translation of the original Hebrew book of kingdoms ultimately into four uh, occur into Greek occurred that this process of dividing the book of Hebrew uh, the, the Hebrew book of kingdoms happened. Okay. Now don't think of this division process as a negative any more than the eventual division of books into chapters and chapters into verses was a corruption. It was only done for convenience sake for a better means to communicate and study God's word that these modifications were made and has caused no substantial harm. Now the result of this Hebrew to Greek translation that took place in Alexandria, Egypt around 250 years before the birth of Christ was a work that came to be called the Septuagint or the LXX in Roman numerals for short. And it was actually a pretty good and faithful translation. But as many of you have seen in our Torah class lessons of the earlier books of the Old Testament, there are always questionable choices that a translator necessarily must make when translating a a document from one language to another. And, And much of the issue of inherent translation difficulty is based on the rather simple and self-evident reality that a culture and its accompanying native language are tightly woven together and inseparable. It is but historic fact that the leaders of conquering empires have always moved rapidly to require that usage of their own native language be imposed upon the newly conquered peoples. Because if you can destroy the national language, you can disconnect the people from their national identity. Once you do that, the assimilation process is faster and easier. And in but one or two generations... Resistance to the new political reality is all but forgotten except among a few radicals. Now the reason for this is easily seen. Every culture develops traditions and recalls their own unique history by memorializing it and handing it down generation to generation. A few millennia ago, this handing down process was accomplished accomplished exclusively by word of mouth. Later on, these traditions were handed down using alphabets and writing. Certain cultural and societal concepts were and are unique to that culture alone. And whatever the developed language used, words were invented to describe and communicate these unique concepts among themselves. For instance, the word and concept of democracy has one meaning in America, has quite another in England, yet another in France, and a wholly different concept in modern Israel. Democracy in America has historically and culturally been based on intense individualism. But in France, it is based on an intense collectivism. In modern Israel, democracy is a unique blend of theocracy, socialism, communism, and representative government 
that has a very strong authoritarian thread running all through it. Thus, when we leave America and we visit one of these other so-called democratic countries, we can be quite surprised at how different they comprehend democracy than we do. So when we look at the Bible in English and read a word or a phrase that is easily recognizable to us, while it may seem on the surface to be communicating the same concept in our Western modern society that the original Hebrew writer had in mind, often it's just not. He has a whole different idea in his mind. This same problem arose with that very first translation of the Hebrew Bible to another language, Greek. And I don't think it's very hard to imagine how some Hebrew cultural and traditional concepts weren't carried across that language barrier in their fullest and most accurate sense. But now complicate that further by taking the Greek and translating it to English. Or taking the Greek and translating that to Latin and then the Latin to English. And the problem of further losing the original biblical cultural perspective at every step just multiplies. Lose the original cultural perspective and the all-important meaning can get, a lot, can get lost along with it. That problem doesn't get any easier for us in studying these next four books of the Tanakh. So we're going to perhaps look at more Hebrew words and their nuances than we ever have. We're going to look closer at the nuances of these words and how it ever so slightly but importantly changes what we take from it. We're also going to put to work what we have learned thus far from the Torah. Because as we move along through the Old Testament, it is assumed that the reader knows what came before it. And, the, and, and, and that we're familiar with Israel's beginnings and their history, as well as God's laws and commands that undergirds all of it. So, here we go. Israel is not a unified nation at the time of Samuel. In fact, we can only speak of Israel as an entity in a very general sense. Certainly not as a unified body. Rather, Israel is now merely a loose conglomeration of tribes and their many clans, and warfare among these Israelite tribes and clans has become all too regular and common as they vie for territorial dominance, which, of course, is the norm for tribal societies, but probably ought not be for God's set-apart people. Such instability means that neighboring nations have a much easier time in attacking various areas of the promised land because it's unlikely that unless a tribe that is currently at peace would see any self-interest in coming to the aid of a brother tribe that was under attack, why would they take the risk? Many of the Canaanite peoples and nations that were there when Joshua first led Israel to Canaan, are still there. And they're as entrenched as ever. The Philistines now are quite powerful this time. But their influence is mostly in the southern and central regions of of Canaan. Right this area uh, in in here. Primarily, they're located along the Mediterranean coastlands. And they kind of move back a little bit into what is called the Shefla, which is the coastal plain. Open warfare is not the norm between the southern Hebrew tribes and the Philistines, although skirmishes do break out from time to time. Rather, the political situation is that the Philistines are anything but brutish barbarians. 
Okay? They are quite, polit- uh, quite sophisticated. They use their power wisely. They prefer a kind of peaceful coexistence with the three or four southern and central um, Israelite tribes, provided these Israelite tribes kowtow to Philistia and don't do things that they see as uh, threatening or provocative. It's not at all that Israel was to declare downright allegiance to Philistia. Only that they remain docile. And that they accept the Philistines' dominance of the region. But also that Israel would not defame the Philistine gods, but rather they would show them respect. On the other hand, Philistia certainly had in mind that within probably another generation or two, if they played their cards right, they would be the de facto government over all of southern and central Canaan, including the Israelite tribes that lived there, of course. And the question of who was in charge would become a settled matter rather naturally over time with limited bloodshed. So while the Lord had in the past sent a number of deliverers called judges, Shoftim, to the various tribes of Israel to save them from the outright attacks and the the vicious oppressions of various foreigners, Israel was even more fragmented and vulnerable now than when God gave them their first judge, Otniel, some 300 years or so earlier than the time of Samuel. Even the special priesthood that God had established with Moses' own tribe of Levi was entirely dysfunctional, barely operating. So into these dark circumstances, God would send a new kind of Savior to usher Israel into a new kind, at least for them, of rule. As always... Yehovah's purpose was to demonstrate his marvelous mercy by rescuing his people from a predicament of their own making. Let's read the opening chapter of the book of Samuel. 1 Samuel. It is uh, 298 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. First Samuel. There was a man from uh, Ramataim Sophim in the hills of Ephraim whose name was Elchanah, the son of Yerucham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Suf, from Ephrat. He had two wives, one named Hannah, the other Penina. Penina had children. Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city every year to worship and sacrifice to Adonai Safwot, in Shiloh. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Pinchas, were Kohanim of Adonai there. One day when Elchanah was sacrificing, he gave a portion of the sacrifice to his wife Penina and portions to each of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved Hannah, even though Adonai had kept her from having children. Her rival taunted her, made her feel bad because Adonai had kept her from having children. He did the same every year and each time she went up to the house of Adonai, she taunted her so much that she would cry and not eat. And her husband Elchanah said to her, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why be so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah got up after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And Eli the priest was sitting on his seat by the doorpost of the temple of Adonai. In deep depression, she prayed to Adonai and cried. And then she took a vow. And she said, Adonai Safwot, if you will notice how humiliated your servant is, if you will remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a male child, 
then I will give him to Adonai for as long as he lives, and no razor will ever come upon his head. She prayed for a long time before Adonai, and as she did, Eli was watching her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips moved, but her voice couldn't be heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Stop drinking your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I'm a very unhappy woman. I've not drunk either wine or other strong liquor. Rather, I've been pouring out my soul before Adonai. Don't think of your servant as a worthless woman, because I have been speaking from the depths of my distress and anger. And then Eli replied, Go in peace. May the daughter of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she replied, May your servant find favor in your sight. So the woman went on her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. They got up early in the morning and worshipped before Adonai, then returned and came to their house in Ramah. Elchanah had sexual relations with Hannah, his wife, and Adonai remembered her. She conceived, and in due time she gave birth to a son, whom she named Shmuel, asked because I asked God for him. The husband Elchanah went up with all of his household to offer the yearly sacrifice to Adonai and fulfill his vow. But Hannah did not go up, explaining to her husband, not till the child has been weaned. Then I'll bring him so that he can appear before Adonai and live there forever. Her husband Elchanah answered her, Well, do what seems good to you. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may Adonai bring about what he said. So the woman stayed behind and nursed the child until she weaned him. And after weaning him, she took him up with her, along with three young bulls, a bushel of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of Adonai in Shiloh, even though he was just a child. After the bull had been slaughtered, the child was brought to Eli. And she said, My lord, as sure as you live, my lord, I am the woman who stood here near you praying to Adonai. I prayed for this child. And Adonai has granted the request I asked of him. Therefore, I too have loaned him to Adonai. As long as he lives, he is on loan to Adonai. And he prostrated himself there before Adonai. story opens with identifying the region where our tale unfolds. And, of course, it names the family it would center upon. And the family is from a place called Ramataim Sophim, right up in here. And it's being described as, as, as sitting on the hills of Ephraim. Now, Ramataim is a commonplace name. And it means double heights or two hills. And this is then further identified for us as Zophim, which denotes a clan name, essentially giving us the name of the place, meaning the place of two hills in the territory of Zuf. Now later we will see that this same man is said to be from Ramah, which is just a shortened version of Ramataim Zophim. Ramah is a known place today. And in fact, you can go there and visit the tomb of the namesake of this book of the Bible, Samuel. Matter of fact, it's not very far from Jerusalem at all. Now, the man from Ramah is the first character identified in this narrative, and his name is Elchanah. God created. A short genealogy is given to help define his family, but at the same time, it also kind of confuses the situation because it says that the clan leader of Elkanah's family was an Ephratite. Now, a few lessons ago, we learned that this term Ephratite can can denote a couple of different things depending on its context. It can be synonymous with Ephraimite, that is, being from the tribe of Ephraim, or it can mean the person is from a village called Ephrath, which is located just outside of Bethlehem, 
Or it can also mean a person who is from a clan of abundance because Ephrath means fruitful. Okay. <clears throat> or there's a fourth option in our case. El- that, that Elkanah was some combination of all the aforementioned possibilities. This is why, depending on the translator or the teacher, you're going to hear that Samuel is a Levite. We'll get to that in a minute. Or he was from the tribe of Ephraim. Or he might have been from the tribe of Benjamin, since the village of Ephrath was located in Benjamite territory. The genealogy that's given to us in these verses pretty well cements that Elkanah's father's family line was from the tribe of Levi. So, from that sense, Samuel was for sure a Levite. In fact, we can go to the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 6, and there we'll get a more complete family genealogy that connects Elkanah all the way back to Kohat, who was one of the sons of the founder of the tribe, Levi. In addition, we see that Elkanah became a rather customary name used within the Kohathite clan. Yet there is no denying that there is some additional family attachments to the tribes of Ephraim or Benjamin. It, it is possible that it is not a family attachment per se that's being communicated, but rather merely that this particular family of Levites resided in the territory of Benjamin or Ephraim because, after all, the Levites inherited no territory for their own. But rather, they were given cities to live in that were scattered throughout the twelve tribal territories. Verse 2 explains that this man Elchanah had two wives, Penina and Hana. It's pronounced not like Hana, but more like Hana. You got to spit a lot. <laughs> Clear your throat. This means that El Elkanah was reasonably well-to-do, which again ties into being thought of as an Ephrati. You see, by this time in, his, in Hebrew history, a man with more than one wife, more often than not, had two wives for as, for as much as a status symbol as anything else. Since in the Middle East, having an heir was critically important, a man might marry a second woman if his first wife couldn't seem to produce him a son quick enough to suit him. And indeed it was that Penina produced an heir for Elkanah when Hana couldn't. The story set up continues with the information that this pious family of Elkanahs went up every year to Shiloh, Shiloh to observe some annual festival and to sacrifice. And now there's a great deal of conjecture as to just what that particular festival might have been. Was it one of the three great pilgrimage festivals that's ordained by God in Leviticus, Pesach, Shavuot, or uh, Sukkot? Or was it something else entirely? In fact, the evidence is that there were traditional private family and or clan festivals held at Shiloh that had nothing to do with these Levitical feast days. And that's very probably the case here in uh, Samuel, that this was not one of the biblical feasts. Well, Shiloh was the location at this time of the wilderness tabernacle. And it was about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. The tent shrine of the Israelites had been there since the days of Joshua. And remained as the dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant. Thus the high priest was of course located there. Eli was the high priest at this time. And his two sons were undoubtedly the chief priests that were directly under him. Now it's interesting that Phinehas... 
and Hopni are both Egyptian names and not Hebrew names. Okay. However, I doubt we ought to make too much out of this as it was traditional to always name some of the succeeding generation after folks from the previous generation. And of course, if you think back, we read about a man named Phineas who was a Levite during the days that Israel was wandering in the wilderness. So I'm fairly certain no inference to any kind of Egyptian loyalty was intended here. Now we're told that Elkanah and his family went up to Shiloh annually to worship Yehoveh Safwot. Okay? A phrase that is usually rendered in English as the Lord of Hosts. Now this is a brand new title for the God of Israel and this is the first time in the Bible that we discover it. There is no evidence that before Samuel's time that this title was used for God. We're going to find it employed in three different combinations now from here forward in Holy Scripture. Elohim, Safwot, God of Hosts, Adonai, Safwot, Lord of Hosts, and Yehovah, Safwot, Yehovah of Hosts. Okay? Now, what does that title, Lord of Hosts, really mean? What's it trying to get across to us? Well, in Genesis, the term hosts is used in conjunction with two things, angels and stars. Okay. Now, notice in both cases, Safwot, hosts, plural, by the way, is speaking of heavenly hosts, or better, heavenly bodies. Okay. A host of something means it's a multitude, or it's, it's, it's a countless number. And by the way, it's virtually synonymous with the biblical expression, as many as the sands of the sea. It means the same general idea. So at times, the Bible will speak of a host of angels or a host of stars. But when it does, the Hebrew word is not safwot, it is safa. Now this is technical, but if you'll pay attention to this, it'll give you a little Bible fact to impress and dazzle your friends with. (coughs) When we use the term Sava, it is used like an adjective. That is, a sava, a host of stars. But we'll also find the Bible using it as a kind of shorthand form of the phrase that means the same thing. Rather than say, for instance, sava, host, malakim, host of angels... At times the Bible would just say Savaot, meaning hosts, plural, just shortens it. That the word Zavaot just stands by itself, then you won't see the entire phrase host of angels. So when we see the word hosts in the plural, just used by itself, like a subject or, or a noun, then it means a huge army of stars or a huge army of angels, depending on the context. Sava is an adjective that explains a noun. Safot is a noun that's shorthand for meaning a host of stars or a host of angels. Another common translation of Safot is heavenly hosts. And again, depending on the context, it could refer to angels, it could refer to stars, it could refer to both. Thus, when we see the three forms of Elohim, Zavaot, Adonai, Zavaot, Yehoveh, Zavaot, they're all alluding to the God who is the God of both the stars and the angels each innumerable in quantity. And of course, there is an interesting characteristic 
of stars and angels that we need to consider. Stars are physical objects. Angels are spiritual beings. Stars are visible. Angels are invisible spirits. So, this title for God that is expressed in three slightly different ways is a majestic expression meant to speak of the king and master over all that is seen and all that is unseen. And God's created creatures and God's created objects. Okay? There's a lot behind those small Hebrew words that's not so easy to bring across with a simple transliteration. Now verse 4 explains that Elkanah was up in Shiloh making his annual sacrifice. And he gave a portion of the sacrifice to his wife, Peninnah. But he gave a double portion to his wife, Hannah, says, because he loved her. And the sense of this, at least in the English, is that he showed extra love to Hannah because she was unable to have children. In other words, Elkanah felt sorry for her. His heart went out to her because of this situation. Further, that it was the Lord who was keeping Hannah from having children. Interesting, you know, more and more we're seeing that the mindset is that whatever happens, good or bad, to the worshiper of Yehovah, it's of the Lord. The Hebrews rightfully had no problem with the idea that the Lord could send, uh, could send catastrophe or he could send blessing to one of his own according to his will. Thus it wasn't with, this, with, with a kind of blaming attitude that Hannah was saying that God had shut up her womb. It was just a matter of fact. And it was with that simple understanding that nothing happens without the Lord's approval that at the very least, he must have at least approved of her barrenness. Now I made this point before we dissect the first part of this verse because it's common Christianese to say that the Lord is in control of everything and nothing happens without the Lord allowing it. On the other hand, the rather standard evangelical doctrine is that nothing but good comes from the Lord and He would never send something bad our way. So if something bad happens, it's the devil. Okay? Therefore, a lot of modern believers kind of paint a mental picture of God that has Him actively sending blessings but passively standing aside and allowing calamities. The Hebrews sure didn't see it that way. And this is because that's not what the Bible says about God. Now, here's how Hannah sees the nature of her problem. As most Hebrew women of her time would have or should have seen it. The Lord actively and purposefully affected her body. And thus made it so she, she could not have children. The reason for such a harsh choice might not have been known to Hannah, but she was perfectly comfortable that it was God's unassailable right to do it. And by the way, do you recall that Naomi, the aged and childless widow from the book of Ruth, made just such a statement expressing that same attitude, that it was the Lord would put her in such a bitter condition of poverty and hopelessness. To Hannah's thinking, there were two overriding reasons that probably would have accounted for her barren state. First, she had sinned, and this curse of childlessness was her punishment, or perhaps she had not sinned. But the Lord had his own undisclosed purpose for closing up her womb. And while I can't be 100% sure, 
of which it was, although there seems to be no hint that sin was involved in here anywhere. Hannah seems to be uncertain as well. And soon, when we untangle a couple more verses, we're going to see that Hannah suspects that she might have sinned and is being punished, but she would like divine restoration, if that's the case. Now, I'm not sure I have the ability, particularly as a man, to paint the scope of the humiliation and pain for Hannah. Not being able to give birth practically negated her role as a human female. She wasn't a whole woman. Okay? It was apparently the norm for the village women, at least some of them in that era, to poke fun or to make outright disparaging remarks at a barren woman because she was unable to perform the very thing she was born to do. And that made her a lesser person. If that woman's husband wasn't wealthy enough to be able to marry a second wife, then he wouldn't have an heir. Which means that his life essence would end at the grave and his family line would cease. And all this was seen as the fault of the woman. These disastrous consequences lay solely at her feet. One can only imagine the terrible state of mind that a woman like Hannah endured. Now back to the top of verse 4 and the sacrifice that Elkanah was making. That sacrifice had to have been a specific class a sacrifice called a Zevah Shlamim because it was one of the few kinds that a worshiper could eat a portion of it. In fact, with this kind of sacrifice, the law gave the bulk of the sacrificial animal to the worshiper for food. But it also means that this wasn't the only kind of sacrifice that Elkanah performed. An Olah and a Mincha were required before a Zevah Shlamim could occur. But there's some other interesting aspects of verse 5. Where our Bibles say that Elchanah gave Hannah the double portion because he loved her isn't quite correct. Rather, it should read, it was Hannah whom he loved. That is quite different. And it immediately says that he had love for Hannah and something less for Penina, which really goes a long way to explain what comes later. Thus it is not that Elkanah felt sorry necessarily for Hannah and thus gave her an extra portion of meat from the sacrifice to make her feel better. Rather it is that he had great love for Hannah and little for Penina. It was outright favoritism. It was outright preference by Elkanah, just like we saw between Jacob and Rachel versus Jacob and Leah. In nearly every situation, we'll read about in Scripture where a man has more than one wife or concubine, we find trouble. Because it's simply not in the human nature of women to accept being one of several in a man's household. And it is not in the human nature of men to love several women equally. Verse 6 and 7 tells us that Penina taunted Hannah for not having children. And this made Hannah feel very bad. And every year this whole nasty scene was replayed because they would all go up together as a family. Big happy family. Right, to Shiloh for this family feast. 
And Elchanah would sacrifice. And he'd give Hanah this extra portion. And then Pinanah would retaliate with slinging, stinging words of derision towards Hanah for her childlessness. And this particular year, it so upset Hannah that she couldn't even eat her festive meal. And instead, she just wept and wept. It, it, it was a kind of ironic situation that I'm sure Peninnah delighted in. Because Hannah couldn't enjoy that extra portion that her husband had given to her. I can only imagine... What a difficult living situation it must have been for those two women, both being legal wives. It would have been natural for jealousy to be front and center at all times and for them to spar over getting their fair share of their husband's attention and affections. Thus we see in verse 6 that even he even call, uh, that the scripture even calls Peninnah Hana's rival. Now let's take a look at that for a moment. To translate the first part, I told you we're going to look at these Hebrew words carefully. To translate the first part of verse 6 as saying that Penina was Hana's rival is on course, but it kind of stops short of what it meant. The Hebrew word is Sarah. And more recent understanding of the Ugarit language, which is a very early Semitic cousin language of Hebrew, shows us that this is actually, that word, an informal name for a kind of wife that was quite usual in the ancient Middle Eastern society. It literally meant rival wife or co-wife which is a rival wife. In a larger sense, it can mean second wife, but not in the sense that the one that was called that was the, was the second of two. All right? It's just that there were two. And in this usage, both Penina and Hana were Sarah, co-wives, legally equal wives of Elchanah. So, although on the surface it seems as though the English text is telling us that the taunting was occurring because they behaved as rivals, in fact, the Hebrew explains that it's more akin to merely saying the other wife, without characterizing the behavior or attitude as good or bad, thoughtful or thoughtless. Now, Elkanah, because he greatly loved Hana, but not so much Penina, tenderly tried to soothe Hannah and rhetorically asked her why she was crying. I mean, of course he knew why she was crying. So he tried to get her to see the bright side. That's what we men do. Fix it. Right. That even though she could have no sons, he treated her as wonderfully as a man would have treated a wife that had given him ten sons. Which, of course, is one reason Penina, who had given Elkanah an heir and many other children, was constantly miffed in this whole deal. Okay? Hannah was, of course, still despondent. But this time, she was going to take matters into her own hands. She was going to seek out the one who was causing her grief and see if something couldn't be done about it. So in verse 9, after finishing her festive banquet meal, Hannah walks over to the sanctuary tent and confronts Yehovah in prayer. And Eli, the high priest, was sitting in his chair, says, at the front entrance to the tabernacle, and of course, he noticed her. Now a chair was an item of furniture reserved for those of higher ranking. And it was considered a position of honor. A chair wasn't a usual piece of furniture. Most people of that age merely sat on the ground or on a rock. Hannah is weeping. She begins praying in front of Eli. 
We're told that she made a kind of bargain with God. It was in the form of a vow. If God would relent and open her womb, then she would return that child to God by means of dedicating him for sanctuary work for his entire life. Now let's carefully examine just what it is that Hannah said to the Lord. First, we need to give much merit to Hannah for coming to the Lord for refuge in her affliction. Remember, she's not coming to Yehovah asking that he override an accidental biological problem with her body. Or that the Lord overcome a malicious act by the devil. She's coming to him asking him to relent and to release her from a condition that he has intentionally put upon her for some unknown reason. Second, the reason for her requesting this favor from the Lord is to relieve her humiliation. In other words, this has nothing to do with anyone but herself. I mean, her husband, Elkanah, has a vibrant bevy of children. And at least one heir, thanks to the faithfulness of Penanah's womb. So there is no family or inheritance problem here that Hannah providing a child would solve. Rather, it is as we discussed earlier. It was life's purpose for a female to give birth. Thus to be barren brought a never-ending sense of guilt and worthlessness to Hannah. That no amount of double portions or Elkanah trying to fix it was ever going to replace. Thus for Hannah, it wasn't even necessary that she raise the child. But merely to bring this new life into the world. Thereby fulfilling her womanly purpose and ending her humiliation. The bargain was that if the Lord would do this, then she would give that child up to God because he was the one who gave this child to her. And not merely figuratively or in a spiritual sense as we do at baby dedications, but physically, literally, she would remove that child from her motherly presence and turn him over to the priesthood in service to God permanently. Now, I I don't want to paint all vows as bargains. Many were simply promises to the Father that asked nothing in return. But as we have seen many times, vows often were part and parcel with beseeching the Lord for a specific deliverance of some kind. Yet I also think we need to understand that a vow made to God even as a bargain is a serious matter. And Yeshua counsels against doing it. Not because it's sinful, but because there can be unintended consequences. Now the vow that Hannah vowed was the vow of a Nazarite. And it was done in a similar mold as Samson's mother did to have her shut-up womb revitalized. Both Samson and Samuel would be lifelong Nazarites, which was a rather rare occurrence. A Nazarite vow was actually usually just for a specific and temporary time period. Now some scholars say Samuel was not a Nazarite, and this was due to a couple of lines of thought. First, that Hannah did not say Samuel would be a Nazarite, didn't use the word. She only said that no razor would cut his hair. And second, it's also questionable that a Levite would ever be a Nazarite. The whole idea of a Nazarite was that a member of one of the twelve secular tribes, the other Israelite tribes, could assume a special holy status that enabled him to serve the Lord in a manner similar to what the Levites did. 
Levites, you see, were automatically born with the right and the requirement to serve God at the uh, tabernacle in one capacity or another. So it's kind of redundant at the least for Hannah to make a Nazarite vow for her Levite son-to-be, Samuel. But keep in mind that this was a very confused and dysfunctional era. Okay. And, and we don't even see overt mention that Elkanah was a Levite. You can just take it from his genealogy. We also see no evidence of Elkanah performing some kind of sanctuary service at Shiloh, which all Levites were technically obligated to do. So again, using a baby, baby dedication as an example, there is utterly no need for a parent to stand on a stage and have a pastor give the baby's life to the Lord. Every believing parent has the right to do that at any time, anywhere, without a formal ceremony or a church authority to preside over it. But a lot of young Christian parents don't fully comprehend that. So they go through the unneeded, but not at all wrong, step of participating in a formal baby dedication ceremony. Hannah may have been doing something kind of similar. On the other hand, Levites were generally not required to begin their full-time sanctuary service until they were 25 years old. And normally they were released from it by the age of 50. In our case with Samuel, he would be the Lord's property right away due to Hannah's vow. And Samuel would begin to serve even as a small child and wouldn't be released from that service until his death. So I have no doubts whether this was done perfectly kosher or not. This was a Nazarite vow that uh, Hannah was pronouncing. We'll continue with this chapter next week.